All right, so tonight we're going to finish up our uh, series on eternal security. We've got actually three more bullet points, if you want to call it that, in the outline that we started a few weeks ago. But before we get to that, I want to mention a couple of announcements about uh, things that are going on with Not By Works and also what we're going to start next week here on Wednesday nights. So starting next Wednesday, which will be the 21st, we're going to move into a new uh, series, and I don't have it created yet, although I've been working on the first session, uh, so I don't know how long it'll last, but we'll just kind of go as long as there's material to cover. And I'm going to call it, What in the World is Going On? And what we're going to do is take key events, news items, major developments in the geopolitical world and each week and talk about them and then look at them through the lens of Scripture and see uh, how they could be setting the stage for what lies ahead. So on Sunday mornings, we've been doing an, uh, a theological teaching on what lies ahead, going basically systematically through uh, the biblical doctrine of eschatology or end times. And we've still got plenty more to cover on that front. Uh, this, well, not this Sunday, but the next time we uh, convene that uh, Sunday morning Bible study, which will be a week after this Sunday, we're going to finish up the Olivet Discourse, and then I want to get into some of the other stuff related to the Tribulation, the Millennium, the Eternal State. Uh, but this is going to be a little bit different. This is going to be um, kind of uh, almost uh, sort of an update on things that we talked about last fall, but it'll be new things. So, for example, many of you, I'm sure, have heard of uh, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset. Well, I've studied that for some time and touched on it at times. You may have even heard me reference it, and we've talked about it for a few slides here and there when the topic justified it. But I want to start out what in the world is going on by really giving a comprehensive overview and quotes from his book, because he is really at the tip of the spear in ushering in this new world system. And you're going to be blown away by some of his own quotes and the people that are involved with him, like Bill Gates and others. And we see these things happening before our very eyes, and we especially see them uh, really kind of queuing up uh, for this fall. And so, again, I'm not a prophet. I'm not here to sensationalize or pick dates, but, uh, you know, you'd be crazy to stick your head in the sand and not be alert for what they are telling us is going to be happening as soon as this fall. So I just want to spend some time Wednesday nights uh, kind of informally. I mean, I'll have some stuff prepared, but I want it to be dialogue, kind of like it always is on our midweek study. For those of you that live stream it or watch the video later, we'll always have the videos posted, and it'll still be posted on both Not By Works and Plum Creek Chapel websites. So be uh, looking forward to that. We'll kick that off next week. I uh, want to mention a couple of radio programs that I've done in the last week. Uh, since we last met. So yeah, uh, let's see, what's today? Wednesday? Yes. Yesterday I did, I was on Christian Underground News Network. I'm going to, at least for the foreseeable future, be a regular Tuesday guest on that show. Um, and uh, we talked about, does Romans 13 teach that we must obey the government? And I really wanted to, you know, produce something that really comprehensively goes through that passage verse by verse. And that's what I did on the show. We had an hour together and I I talked about it, so for those of you who are under the mistaken impression that Romans 13 tells us we've got to obey the government, listen to the podcast. It's available anywhere podcasts are found. Just search for notbyworks.org. Um, we reposted it on our podcast channel, so every podcast provider you've ever heard of has it. Just search for Not By Works Ministries, and then it'll be uh, one of the podcasts. Or you can always get to it through the Not By Works website as well. And then last Thursday, uh, I was on Stand Up For The Truth, and we talked about, is the country we love becoming the country we fear? And uh, touched on uh, quite a bit of things uh, coming out of July 4th. That was the week after July 4th, and how many churches around the country are woke, and we're talking about how terrible our country is, and how racist we are, and how you know we, we hate our country. Uh, and so uh, we, we wanted to talk on that episode, uh, or that podcast, uh, about uh, what's great about our country. And so we talked about, kind of like we did at our 4th of July event here at Plum Creek Chapel in my message, One Nation Under God, we talked about the fingerprints of God being all over the nation, but then we talked about how 
there are certain things that are happening that are contrary to the teaching of God's Word. So that's, again, another one-hour podcast that you can find anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just go to the Not By Works Ministries channel. On that podcast, I mentioned a... Uh, a one-and-a-half-hour full-length DVD that we did a couple of years ago called Red, White, and Bad, When the Country We Love Becomes a Country We Fear. So if this piques an interest and you'd like to study it in more in-depth, I would encourage you to check that out. It's available on DVD or digital download. But I'm really excited about the series that's coming up starting next week, What in the World is Going On. Uh, hopefully we'll answer a lot of questions that people have, and we'll answer questions you didn't even know you had. We hope that we generate some questions and then answer them, and that's kind of the plan uh, starting next Wednesday. But let's get back to the topic at hand as tonight we finish up this study of uh, eternal security, and uh, we've talked about how there are three views on eternal security. Uh, we reject the first two, which are the outright denial uh, that you cannot lose your salvation. People that believe you can lose it, that you have to hang on to it. I listened to a podcast on my drive-in just now from a guy uh, who was suggesting, uh, I won't tell you what church he's from, a large church, but also from more of a charismatic perspective, suggesting that if you don't continue to make Jesus Lord of your life, you're going to lose your salvation. That's what he was saying. Uh, so he would be in that camp. You can lose it. You must have had to earn it in their view, so since you earned it, you can lose it. The second view, which we reject, is the view that says, well, you can't really lose it, but if you're not acting right, if you're misbehaving, if there's anything in your life that's not fully submissive to the Lord, then uh, you're going to prove that you never had it. So they believe you can disprove your salvation. But we reject that as well because we believe that salvation is a free gift of God, paid for by the blood of Christ. You do nothing to earn it. You do nothing to keep it. You cannot lose it. So that's what we've been talking about uh, in this uh, series, ex the explicit defense of the doctrine of eternal security. And we've been going through eight undeniable proofs of eternal security. We first looked at logical proof, and we looked at Scripture with each one of these. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to rehash all that. I'm just going to mention each of the first uh, five points. But logical proof simply says that if uh, eternal salvation can be lost, it's got the worst name you can ever give it. It's completely misleading. It's not only misleading, it's outright wrong. But yet Jesus said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. Now He either meant that or he didn't. So logically, if it's a, if it's a present possession and the name of it is eternal, then you once you have it in your possession, you can never lose it. We called that logical proof. Then we looked at key biblical proof texts. Uh, that uh, confirm uh, plainly in their plain normal sense with the words on the page uh, that eternal salvation can never be lost. Once lost, once saved, always saved. And I suggested that you memorize these passages because uh, they're pretty clear. For example, Ephesians 1, having believed the gospel, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. I mean, that couldn't be any more clear. I mean, who are we to think we can break that seal? Same thing in Ephesians 4 and 2 Corinthians 1. Looked at John 10, 28, where, again, Jesus says, I give you, present tense, eternal life. No one can pluck you out of my hand. My Father, who is greater than I, no one can pluck them out of his hand. And then Romans 8. We're going to come back to Romans 8 today, but that's one of the most beautiful passages uh, that prove eternal security. Then we talked about directional proof, and we said you should never forget the direction of salvation. We are the receiver. God is the giver. God gives us salvation. It's not about what we give him or offer him. Or it's not about what we do in exchange. There is no exchange. There is no exchange. This podcast I was listening to today, the guy who, by the way, I really liked. I was disappointed when he got off into the gospel. Sometimes, to be honest with you, when I'm listening to uh, speakers and uh, or watching videos of speakers about other topics, I sit there the whole time thinking, Please don't let him talk about the gospel. Please don't let him talk about the gospel. Why would I say that? Because inevitably I know when they start talking about the gospel, they're going to be wrong. And then it just disappoints me because now i got to kind of mark them off my list as a, a pure gospel, like-minded, uh, clear uh, evangelist, even though other stuff that they're saying might be right. But there's nothing that matters more than the gospel. But that's what he was saying is that when you get ready to get saved, you've got to make him Lord. You've got to promise to follow and obey him. You've got to surrender to his lordship. And then after you are saved, which no one gets saved the way he suggested you get saved, but let's say you are saved, he says, if you don't continue to make him Lord, you're not saved. And he, he said the st statement is very 
famous statement that uh, you hear all the time from those in that camp. If, he's, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Well, I'm here to tell you, he is Lord of all, whether you make him Lord or not. He's Lord of all because he's the creator of the universe. And I don't have to surrender to his lordship to get saved. Now, I don't know why anyone wouldn't surrender to his lordship. He's a lot smarter than we are. You know, he's God. He's the creator. But salvation isn't a transaction where we give him something or promise him something or commit to something or pledge to do something. And then he says, okay, well, as long as you really keep your word, I'll let you into heaven. That's not salvation. It's one directional. God's the giver. We're the receiver. It's a free gift. We don't have to do anything to get it other than believe. 160 times the New Testament says you receive the gift of eternal life by faith alone in Christ alone. And then uh, we looked at legal proof uh, and uh, talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And we looked at the term justification and talked about how it's a legal term. It's like a judge lowering the gavel and case closed, issue settled, verdict rendered. And uh, God cannot go back on his ruling. You are once for all declared righteous. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about our position in Christ versus our practice. And unfortunately, many people like this uh, preacher I was listening to today confuse the issue of justification and sanctification. And they think that because someone's not living a sanctified progressively, we're talking about the way it's used 90% of the time in the New Testament, the word sanctified is used of our practice, our progressive Christ-likeness, conforming to the image of Christ, spiritual maturity. And a lot of times people say if you're not living a sanctified life, then you were never justified. But they're not, uh, that's not true. You can be justified by faith alone, and then sometimes we don't always live out the new man. We don't act like we are justified. doesn't mean we're not saved. It just means we're going to come under swift consequence, the discipline of God, and there are many consequences for sin. Then last week we spent uh, the entire time talking about theology and what does that mean. And, 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 we're go- and then we, we talked about the theology process, the five steps in that process, a biblical theology, systematic, doctrinal, comparative, and applied. And basically we said when you're doing theology, you start with one verse, you connect it to another verse or maybe multiple verses, and you come up with a conclusion by comparing Scripture with Scripture. It's what theologians call the analogy of faith that scripture best interprets itself. And so when you're cross-referencing or when you're reading your Bible and you think of another verse or maybe the center column notes point you to another verse or maybe a book you're reading does and you then go look at that, then you go look at another one, then you go back to the original one, what you're doing is theology. You're doing the process of theology. But once you've arrived at a conclusion from that, then we said you need to use that conclusion because it is based on the Word of God to either reject or accept other truth claims. And the world's truth claims can never contradict uh, the Bible's truth claims. I mean, they do, but they can't successfully uh, contradict. The Bible wins out. And then we said, most importantly, you're supposed to apply what you've learned to your own life so that you conform to the image of Christ. So we said the first three steps are the developmental phase of this process, uh, but the last two steps are the implementation phase. So essentially, the process of theology, we said, is building a filter or a worldview through which you can funnel all truth claims for the purpose of validating or invalidating them. So the reason there's so much pro- so many problems today within the church is that churches have gotten away from the Bible as the only standard. They're allowing the world's viewpoints to slip through the grid of Scripture and change the meaning of of God's Word. That's what we talked about last weekend with our creationism conference, that the whole concept of millions of years, which was developed uh, by that Darwinian uh, eugenicist uh, and his cousin, uh, Darwin and Galton, uh, who believe you should kill people that are of color and have uh, physical abnormalities. Uh, They needed an excuse. They needed a reason to be able to say that mankind is not Uh, sacrosanct and made in the image of God and the highest pinnacle of creation. The man is just another useless breather like an oak tree or a rabbit or a cat, right? So the way they do that is they created this concept of millions of years, which we thoroughly debunked this weekend. Those videos from all five sessions are also available at the uh, notbyworks.org website. and, uh, but what they're doing is, and then and well-meaning Christians for the last several hundred years have, and, and Bible preachers and pastors have taken what the world says is true and says, well, 
you know, my seventh grade biology teacher said the world is 65 million years old or possibly older, so it must be true. But I believe the Bible because I'm a good Christian. So how am I going to reconcile those? Well, I'm just going to change the meaning of Scripture and say that day means a million years, right? And so this is what happens when we don't follow this process strictly and make sure that the Bible, that the world's truth claims can pass the test of Scripture. And so then we put that process to the test to prove the doctrine of eternal security. And we only needed three points. Uh, we said that, first of all, in John 10, 28, Christ himself says that we have eternal life. He stakes that, secondly, on the promise of his Father. And then we lead, leave from there and go to Titus 1, 2, and we find out that God cannot lie. So that's a pretty tight little theological system that doesn't leave any room for wiggle room. So essentially, essentially, anyone who suggests that you can lose your salvation is calling God a liar. That's the theological implication of that truth. So now, let's, uh, let's go to the last uh, three. First, we want to talk about exegetical proof. I mentioned last week that exegetical means it deals with the Greek grammar and syntax, in this case in the New Testament. If you're dealing with exegesis of the Old Testament, you'd be dealing with the original Hebrew language or in a certain few places the uh, Aramaic language. But exegesis basically means going beyond just our English translation to some of the significant uh, data points, the meta metadata we might say, beneath the surface uh, that weigh in on the subject and, and make a difference. Uh, and sometimes an, an interpretive issue in Scripture requires exegesis. It doesn't mean you have to be a Greek or Hebrew scholar. It doesn't have to mean you've ever even studied it formally. But you at least need to have an awareness that the Bible was not written in English. And sometimes it can solidify our case by knowing a little bit about the exegesis. So let's go back to Romans 8, 28, uh, particularly verse 30. Uh, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now in English there, you see a series of past tense verbs. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. In English, we don't differentiate between what's called the aorist tense and the past tense. In Greek and other languages, they have an aorist tense. By the way, it's worth noting here before I explain what the aorist tense is that in this is called the golden chain of salvation. It calls, starts with a calling. Predestined, by the way, just means that those who have, have responded favorably to the call of the gospel, God predestines them to conform to the image of Christ. Predestination is not the same thing as election, uh, so, but he mentions it here because that's what he was talking about in the context. Uh, so, but, but starting with called, obviously every believer who's believed the gospel has been called. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and justice. The Holy Spirit came knocking. You began to realize you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And then by faith you're justified. Paul has spent the entire book of Romans so far, up through these first eight chapters, saying over and over again that justification is by faith alone. So you get justified by faith. But notice he goes straight from justified to glorified. What's missing in this golden chain called justified, glorified? Well, sanctified. He doesn't mention the period of time between when you got saved and when you get to heaven. Why? Because that is not guaranteed. Our progressive sanctification is not guaranteed. I'm sorry to disappoint those who may have been taught otherwise because of Calvinistic influence. But as a believer, we can quench the Spirit, we can grieve the Spirit, we can not yield to the Spirit, we can walk in the flesh, we can put on the old man. We are not forced by God to live a godly life any more than we were forced by God to believe the gospel in the first place. We had a free choice to believe the gospel. We are, by our faith, justified, declared eternally righteous at that moment. And then the rest of our life on earth is about yielding to the Spirit and not yielding to the flesh. Walking by faith and not walking by sight. Living out the new nature, the Spirit's convicting work in our life, so that our practice resembles our position in Christ. But that's not guaranteed. If it was guaranteed, we'd all be perfect. And sometimes people say, well, he doesn't guarantee 100%, but God guarantees you'll at least produce some good works. Well, think about the implications of that for just a second. Do we really want to believe in a God who is so powerful, so awesome, so wonderful that he guarantees that every believer will produce 1% good works? 
I mean, if God's going to guarantee it, God doesn't change. God doesn't speak in matters of degree. It's a zero-sum game with God. He is 100% just, 100% holy, 100% righteous. And if he's going to guarantee the same in us, it's going to be 100%. The very fact that we're not perfect shows that our yieldedness to the Holy Spirit can quench the Holy Spirit's work in our life. So that's why it's significant by its absence that Paul does not say in the aorist tense, which we're about to talk about, that we've been, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he sanctified, and those he sanctified, he glorified. Yeah, Fred. Oh, uh, so the positional sanctification is where he imputes all that, perfect, his righteousness, through the work of Christ and our faith in that. And then in the end, there are, it's the final, or final sanctification, or the, what's that called? Well, perfect. Perfect, yeah. So, and, and, an eternal life for us. In between, it's progressive. No. What was the word you used? Progressive. Progressive, mm-hmm. okay. So you could be backsliding or going forward one step back. Correct. So Fred is talking about how the word, and I, I touched on this briefly as I was talking about this a second ago, but let's just pause and really drive this point home. So as we've talked about many times in this midweek study on salvation, going back months and months and months, um, there are three tenses to our salvation. The Bible actually uses the word saved in terms of the past at a one-time moment in time when we believe the gospel and are born again. The present, where we're being saved regularly from the death-dealing consequences of sin or saved from physical danger, harm, sickness. But it also uses the term saved in the future tense when we will once and for all be saved from the very presence of sin when we leave this earth and go to heaven. So past, present, future. Now using the biblical terms that correlate with that, uh, the most common are justified, which is salvation in the past from sin's penalty, the moment we trust Christ. Sanctified, which again, I've suggested 90% of the time that word is used, it's referring to our progressive daily growth process as a Christian. So again, justified, salvation in the past from sin's penalty by faith. Sanctified, salvation in the present from sin's power as we yield to the Holy Spirit and walk by faith. And glorified, which is salvation in the future from sin's presence when we get to heaven. Now what Fred's referring to is that sometimes you'll see the same three points, the same paradigm spoken of in terms of three kinds of sanctification in Scripture. And indeed, the term sanctification, agiatso is the word, to make holy, to to separate, uh, is sometimes used as a synonym for each of those three, justified, progressive sanctification, and glorified. Sometimes the word sanctification, I know it sounds confusing, in Scripture is used of each of those three. And to differentiate that, you'll hear Bible scholars speak of, uh, 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 let's see, progressive, perfect, uh, pre- uh, present, I forget what it's called. Uh, the first one is justified, but it's, oh, positional. Positional sanctification. Positional sanctification, which is just a synonym for justification. It means you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins, and you are declared righteous once for all, never to be taken away. Positional sanctification. Then they'll talk of progressive, or sometimes it's called practical sanctification, which is what 90% of the time the term means. It's the ongoing struggle with sin and the desire to yield to the Holy Spirit and live like Christ. And then it will speak of perfect sanctification, which is a synonym for glorification. So because, for two reasons, because uh, that can get confusing, which I'm sure you're saying, amen, you just thoroughly confuse me. Uh, And also because the term sanctification most often is just a synonym in Scripture for our spiritual growth process, our becoming Christ-like, the progressive growth of the believer, uh, I've, I don't use those three terms. I, I prefer the more common terms, justification, sanctification, glorification. Salvation from sin's penalty once for all, salvation on a daily basis from sin's power as we yield to the Holy Spirit, and salvation ultimately once for all from sin's very presence. Uh, so salvation, or I mean uh, justification, sanctification, uh, glorification. But I just wanted to point out that Paul mentions, does not mention sanctification here. 
Uh, and that's because he's speaking here in the aorist tense of things that are as good as done. So I had a professor in uh, seminary, my first time in seminary, who is known as, has really become one of the most renowned Greek scholars uh, in the world. And uh, he is, has written many, many books, including one, one that is a standard textbook in many, many cemeteries called Greek Grammar. And here's what he says about this uh, aorist tense here in Romans 8, verse 30. The aorist indicative, uh, it, it can be used, the indicative is the case there, uh, the aorist is the tense, can be used to describe an event that is not yet passed as though it were already, I'm sorry, it's the indicative mood, not the case, the case is for nouns, as though it were already completed. The glorification of those who have been declared righteous is as good as done from Paul's perspective. In other words, the aorist tense speaks of a past action with continuing results in the end. And so even though it should be self-evident that we're not glorified, I mean, just look at us, right? We're not glorified. We're still in our physical flesh and blood bodies. But Paul speaks of it with the same aorist tense that he does justified and called. And that's hard for us to get our hands around. We can understand in a linear time that we were called in the past. All of you can think about when you came under conviction and heard the gospel and realized you needed a Savior. You were called some time ago. If you know the Lord, you can think about, yeah, I remember when I was justified, when I placed my faith in Christ. But none of us sitting here today can say, I'm glorified. <laughs> that happens in the future when we die or when the Lord comes back. So, but he uses the aorist tense. This is an exegetical proof that our eternal salvation uh, can never be lost. And we see this aorist tense many times in salvation passages. And again, you wouldn't know it looking at the English translations, but this is pretty incontrovertible uh, proof. So Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit. Made us sit is one word in Greek in its past tense, in this case, aorist tense. So whether you realize it or not, you've already got a reserved seat in heaven. You, you look like you're sitting here in Plum Creek Chapel. But Ephesians 2.5 says, no, you're sitting in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus because we are in Christ. So again, Wallace says the aorist indicative can be used to describe an event that is not yet past as though it were already completed. That's the aorist tense. We see the same thing in uh, Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Delivered us is past tense. It's done. So you're no longer a part of the dark uh, and Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 5 as well, but you've been conveyed into the kingdom of his love. Now, that kingdom has not been inaugurated yet, right? We're not living in the kingdom age. We wish we were. We're living in Satan's kingdom right now. But our citizenship is already in the kingdom. Or Colossians 2, another exegetical example. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, he has made alive. Aorist tense, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that were against us. See, I just want to point these passages out to people like the guy I heard on the podcast today as I was driving here. Uh, wait a minute. What are you saying if someone's not surrendering to the Lordship of Christ today and obeying him? I thought Paul said that the requirements had all been wiped out, you know. And we're, we're already made alive permanently, guaranteed for the future. Uh, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. See, from God's perspective, all of our sins, the ones we committed before we were saved, the ones we've committed since we're saved, the ones we're going to commit tomorrow, we're all nailed to the cross. So when someone says something I do in the future can undo what Christ did at the cross, they're essentially segmenting out my sins and saying that future sins are more powerful than past sins. Because... You know, that's what I just want to ask. So are you saying that my past sins, uh, the one that I committed before I was saved, are going to cause me to lose my salvation? Oh, no, 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 of course not. No, you can't. Those have all been nailed to the cross. Well, so what about my future ones? I mean, is Christ going to die again? I mean, there's only one cross, right? Weren't they nailed to the cross too? 
No, no, those are more powerful. See, any sins you commit from now on are really powerful, and they can undo the blood of Christ and his redemption. Yeah. I don't know who this person was you were listening to, but wouldn't you love to sit and talk with his wife and kids? <laughs> and, yeah. And ask him, so is, is he, you know, on this road, is, does he make a Lord every day of his life? <laughs> Absolutely. Karen said, wouldn't you just love to sit and talk with his wife and kids and, and uh, take a little inventory? But, of course, they have an answer for that. Well, they say, well, those are little sins. I'm not, a, I'm not getting into the big ones. If I was in the big ones, that would really prove it. And it's so, so Catholic, it, exactly. And it and it goes back to that incipient pride that we've talked so much about that somehow a person can understand without a doubt in their own mind that they're still committing sins, but yet they deem themselves still worthy of heaven. But other people that they look at who have the more visible sins outward sins you know debauchery drunkenness sexual sins all, oh that person he's not saved or he lost it you know so uh it's a pridefulness but uh, again nailed to the cross it's all aorist tense here so it's all happened in the past yeah what's debauchery uh what is debauchery uh it's bad stuff uh it's uh it's a term that refers to particular level of evil uh, kind of like the things I talked about, uh, drunkenness, revelry, just complete disregard for any moral standards of all. So, but that'd be that's your assignment. Look it up in in a dictionary and, and let me know the official technical term. I might be misusing the term. I don't. Know. I don't think so. But does Hebrews twelve uh, does that count as Aorist tense as well? When you're saying we have come to Mount Zion. You know, that would be a good question. The question is about Hebrews 12, when it says, we've not come to the city made by hands, but we've come to the city of Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Um, I'd have to look it up, and I can't do that without messing up the recording. If I was smarter or had a good tech team, we could have a way to switch between my Logos Bible and my PowerPoint. But... um, so I'll have to look that up. Because he makes the point earlier that um, you know, it's not about fear anymore. Um, the, old, the old Mount Sinai uh, was one where God was making people tremble and they couldn't even listen to the terrible sounds coming uh, from the mountain. And now it's as good as if we were already there. You know, yeah. That's what I'm thinking, verse 18. But... Um, you have not come to a mountain uh, which was made by hands yeah I mean you you actually see this theme regardless of the tense uh, all through Paul's writings Uh, for example in Philippians he says our citizenship is in heaven and in uh, Colossians he says uh, set your mind on things above not on things on earth Uh, since you were raised with Christ, uh, set your mind on things above, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So there's a repeated theme that, irrespective of the occasional gram- grammatical uh, choice, that shows us theologically that we're just sojourners and pilgrims passing through, that the minute you become part of the family of God, you have spiritual new life and you are a child of God. And we're actually just about to get into that one in our last uh, last point. So, but yeah, that's another great passage where I think, uh, at the very least, he's making the same point. Whether he speaks as strongly in terms of the heirs' tense or not, uh, it remains to be seen. So, and then the the next one here is familial proof, um, and that is this: the moment a person believes the gospel, he's adopted into the family of God. And for those of you that haven't been with us from going all the way back to last fall. We did early on in this series spend several weeks talking about the family of God and what that means and the distinction between being part of the family of God and being in fellowship with God. And just as in an earthly sense you can be part of a family but you're not always getting along, in the same way uh, we can be a born-again Christian and yet out of fellowship with the Lord. This is what 1 John is all about. 1 John is not written to tell us how to know whether we're really going to heaven. It's not tests of life. Uh, the only test of life is have you trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. We're never once, not a single time, told to look at our lives and evaluate our behavior to determine if we're going to be going to heaven. 
That would be completely contrary to everything God's Word says about the distinction between grace and works. We're not saved by works, so we don't keep our salvation by works, and we don't validate our salvation by works. And I know some people who have not studied this or haven't been with us through this whole series may be thinking of common verses that come to mind, such as Matthew 7, by their fruits you shall know them, or 2 Corinthians 13, 5, uh, examine yourselves. All of those passages have nothing to do with eternal security. And the fruit that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7 has nothing to do with behavior. In fact, in Matthew 7, it's just the opposite of the way most people use it. He explicitly says, if you watch the way people act, you might think they're a sheep. But when you listen to what they say, that's the fruit. He's talking about how to recognize false prophets. And just five chapters later in Matthew chapter 12, he makes the explicit point, uses the same analogy, by their fruits you shall know them. And he specifically says the fruit is what comes out of their mouth. So Matthew 7 is saying, don't judge a cover, a book by its cover. You may see something that looks like a sheep, but when you really start listening to them, they're going to be a, you'll find out they're really a wolf. And yet people turn that passage on its head and say, I saw that person over there drinking or going into a bar or cussing or whatever, and they're, they're a wolf. No, they're, they may be a wolf, but they're not a wolf in sheep's clothing, which is what Jesus is talking about. But anyway, we're never told to look at our behavior to determine whether we're heaven-bound. The way we determine whether we're heaven-bound is have we placed our faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one who can save us. That's the only condition. And so, as with anything, if you want to know, uh, if you get the uh, desired result, you have to ask, do I meet the condition? And you determine whether you meet the condition by asking yourself, have I done the one thing the Bible says 160 times I must do to be saved? And so, uh, we talked about family and the difference between family and fellowship. First John is all about fellowship. He writes that your joy may be full. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, the back to eternal security, the familial proof argument goes like this. Once you believe the gospel, you become a child of God. And to say that salvation can be lost would be like saying God is disowning a member of his own family. In Romans chapter 8, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom, that's the Holy Spirit, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba and Father are equivalent terms, the first basically being a transliteration of the Aramaic word, and the second being uh, the Greek word Father, pater. And so uh, several translations kind of pick up on that idea. For example, J.B. Phillips paraphrases Romans 8 as Father, my Father, instead of Abba, Father, it's Father, my Father. Uh, Arthur S. Way rendered it My Father, my own dear Father. <laughs> But the idea is here, you are really adopted into the family and you really have a father. Adoption is another one of those legal terms in Scripture, kind of like justification. And it, with both adoption and justification, the result is a permanent condition. There are no takebacks uh, because they both rest on the love and the grace of God. And notice what he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children then heirs... Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I mean, just think about that. We are joint heirs with Christ. So if something I could do, having been adopted into the family of God, could make me end up in hell, then that would be a tantamount to saying Christ could end up in hell. Right? Because we're joint heirs with Christ. We will be glorified together. Galatians 3, you are all sons of God through faith. We become a child of God. Paul goes on in Galatians to say uh, that, that we, by faith, might receive the adoption of sons. Adoption as sons by faith. And 1 John 3, the passage we just looked about, he, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. <laughs> and uh, John 1.12, you've heard me talk about this a lot. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. So it's a birthright. It's a birthright. And nothing can change that. So that's the familial proof and the exegetical proof. But I want to close out with one more, an eighth undeniable proof. Uh, and that relates to the implications. So I just want you to think for a moment, what are the implications 
if our eternal salvation is not secure. Again, I saved this one for last because, I mean, it's basically like piling on. We, we didn't need seven points already. We could have stopped after any one of them and proven the point. But I just want to show you how overwhelming the evidence is when you stop to think about it. It's expositional or biblical because the passage is clearly stated. It's uh, you know exegetical, it's theological, and so forth and so on. But there's also some practical considerations if you just think about it practically. What are the implications if having believed the gospel something could somehow down the road cause me to end up in hell. Well, first of all, it leads to a life of doubt and desperation. I'm always wondering, am I good enough? I, I spend my life answering an endless barrages, a barrage of what ifs. You know, uh, what if I go too far? What if I do something I shouldn't have? You know, what if, what if, what if? And, uh, and it, it's, there's no answer for that if you think your salvation can be lost because it's subjective. How far is too far? And that's the reason many uh, from the Calvinist camp who don't believe you can lose your salvation, but they do believe it can be disproved, that somehow something you can do can show yourself and others that you never were saved to begin with. And many from that camp have been at least intellectually honest enough about their own view to admit that they themselves can only be 99% sure they're going to heaven. Um, but frankly, if you're not 100% sure you're going to heaven, you're 0% sure. I mean, think about it. Salvation isn't achieved by grading on a scale or some kind of a continuum or a bell curve. It's an all or nothing. Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, you've got to be perfect. Your salvation isn't based upon, well, I'm 90% you know, sure, I'm 80% sure. Well, if I really think about it, I'm probably 87.2% sure I'm going to heaven. I mean, what kind of assurance is that, right? I mean, if you, if you were offered uh, a brownie and, and, and someone said, but there's a little tiny bit of arsenic in there, and if you eat this brownie, you've got a 5% chance of dying instantly. Would you eat it? And where does the percentage have to be before it makes logical sense? How big is it? Yeah, how big is it? <laughs> Gary, you're not helping my case. <laughs> Uh, all analogies tend to uh, have some uh, weaknesses, especially when Gary's in the room. But anyway, um, you see my point. I mean, why would you take that risk? And so, you know, the Bible says we can be 100% sure. 1 John 5.13 says we can know that we have eternal life if we placed our faith in Christ. And so uh, you're, you're, you end up, you know, asking these kinds of questions, you know, What's the remedy for a lost salvation? If I can lose it, how do I get it back again? And how many times do I have to get saved? You only get one chance? You know, if you think your, your salvation is based on a contract where you've got to keep your end of the bargain and you blow it according to that false teaching, is that it? Are you done? Or like the Catholic Church teaches, can you just keep coming back again and again? You might have to say a few more Hail Marys or a few more this or that um, you know uh, we, we were watching a show I feel like I've mentioned this before but I know I didn't mention it Sunday because I didn't preach Sunday we had our creationism conference so it must have been on one of the radio interviews or something but Wendy and I watched a show the other day it was one of those cop shows and there was a scene in it where a guy goes into a confessional booth he's Catholic and uh, he says you know bless me father for I have sinned and I lost my temper at the dinner table and I was short with my kids or something like that and the priest goes, okay, say three Hail Marys and one this and one that. Done, and he walked out. I mean, so if that's if it's a transactional equation where it's a bilateral contract where we do our part and God does his, then, you know, I'd like to know the rules, right? I want to know when I've crossed the line and what I need to do to get back on the other side because I don't want to end up in hell, which is a literal place of eternal torment where... The worm dieth not, and the flames are never quenched. I don't want to go there. And the fact is, I don't have to go there if I believe the good news. That what's, what makes the gospel good news is that Jesus paid it all. He paid a debt he didn't know uh, because I owed a debt I can never pay. And so I can't earn it. I can't work hard enough. I can't be good enough. I've got to receive the free gift paid for on my behalf of 
forgiveness and eternal life. And once I've received it, since I didn't earn it, uh, there's nothing I can do to lose it. Now that's not to say, hold that thought, it's not to say, as I've talked about a lot, but I always feel like I have to give this caveat because I just feel like, you know, critics of Not By Works Ministries are going to pick out a soundbite and then say, you know, newsflash, J.B. Hickson is in favor of sin. Well, I want to make sure you know I'm against sin. Sin is terrible. It'll, my home church preacher used to say it'll take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin is horrible. has devastating consequences. And if you're sinning, you should stop it. But what you need to understand is that as a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no sin that you can commit that will cause God to renege on his ruling or Jesus to take back what he promised or him to disown you from the family. If it's eternal, it's eternal. Yeah. What is a Hail Mary? So uh, Hail Mary is a famous pass from Roger Staubach to Drew Pearson uh, when they were playing the Minnesota Vikings. No, was it the Vikings? I think it was. Yeah, the Vikings. Oh, yeah, it was because I remember speaking in Minnesota one time at a conference and I thought it would be funny. I actually played a clip of that play and the crowd just booed and practically ran me out of town. They didn't find it funny. They, they don't call it the Hail Mary. They call it the push off. They think Drew Pearson pushed off, which is a lie from the pit of hell. But anyway, in, in theology, uh, Hail Mary is what, you see, they, remember, they believe, the Catholics believe Mary is divine. In fact, most Catholics don't even know this, but the doctrine, the, the Roman Catholic doctrine of immaculate conception. Well, let me just throw it out there as a quiz. What is the doctrine of immaculate conception? What's that? Not, no, that's actually not correct. Most people think it's that the Immaculate Conception was that Jesus was born of a virgin, which is what the Bible teaches. No, the doctrine of Immaculate Conception is that Mary was born of a virgin, that Mary was divinely conceived, and she is therefore divine. That's the doctrine of Immaculate Conception. Look it up. So because of that, they believe in worshiping Mary, praying to Mary, that she's basically just one step short of the triune God, and it's called Mariolatry, the worship of Mary, and so therefore they pray to Mary, and a Hail Mary is a particular prayer uh, to Mary. I'm not Catholic, so I can't uh, remember exactly how it goes. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Yeah. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. See, there you go. So it's a prayer, a ritualistic prayer to Mary, not to God, uh, in which they think that's going to accomplish penance for them. So so thank you for asking. Please always ask uh Especially, you know, you young people, I tend to use phrases maybe that you've not heard before, like debauchery, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I want to make sure I'm communicating clearly. So, um, again, what did Christ really accomplish on the cross if my salvation is not secure? I mean, these are some of the implications or the practical questions uh, that, uh, you know, relate to this issue. So we've talked about, you know, the logical proof, eternal means eternal, biblical proof, a whole host of passages that at plain normal reading without bringing your presupposition to the text, make it clear you can't lose it. Directional proof that, uh, you know, that, uh, there's one giver, one receiver, God's the giver, we're the receiver, we did nothing to earn it, therefore we can't do anything to lose it. The legal proof that justification is a legal term, the gavel has been Lowered, God will never renege on his ruling. The theological proof, such as that Jesus promises eternal life, Jesus stakes that claim on the Father, and the Father cannot lie. Done deal. Exegetical proof, the aorist tense frequently shows that our, just, our glorification is just as solid and secure and is a done deal. It's as if it's already happened. Familial proof, we've been adopted in the family of God, and nothing can change that. And then practical proof, let's say for the devil's argument that we can lose it. What does that look like? How does that work? What are the implications of that? Uh, and how can I ever have the security and confidence I need to live for Christ? So the takeaway then, I would say, first of all, stop trying to prove to yourself and others that you're, quote, really saved. Stop it. It's not productive. It's counterproductive. It's like shaking your fist 
toward heaven and saying to Jesus, I know you said you gave me eternal life, but I don't really think you meant it. I don't believe you. And we can believe it. We can believe that he meant what he said. We need to rest in God's grace. Grace, by definition, is undeserved favor, an undeserved gift. And we can rest in his security. His grace never fails. Nothing we can do that can undo what Christ did at the cross. So any other comments or questions before we wrap up um, this study on eternal security? So we have four sessions altogether covered, I feel, pretty thoroughly these, uh, these topics. And uh, if, you go, if you missed some of them, you can go back and watch them. They're on our notbyworks.org. Click videos. And then if you click videos, it brings up hundreds of videos in one page that you can scroll through with the most recent first. But there's also a subheading if you hover over videos. The term videos in the menu, you'll see subcategories like Sunday sermons, Sunday Bible study, midweek Bible study. If you click on midweek, it'll take you right to only the Wednesday Bible studies. Yeah? Can you do a brief contrast between soul and spirit? Yes, a brief contrast between soul and spirit. By the way, I heard another video this week, or it was a podcast actually, where the guy was talking about the man being three parts. So... Uh, we believe the Bible teaches that basically, fundamentally, human beings are comprised of two parts. It's called the bipartite view, material and immaterial. So obviously the material we can all understand, it makes sense, right? It's our physical body, the bones, the flesh, the muscles, the, all of that, the tissues, the blood. That's the material part. The immaterial part is comprised of soul, soul spirit, mind, emotions, all of the things that you can't touch, but they're a reality. Uh, the soul and the spirit are, and, and the English language doesn't help us much because sometimes the same English word is used in a different context. But theologically, the soul is that part of us that is the seat of human emotions and intellect and will. Basically, the soul is the counterpart to the body. So body and soul are body is the material physical part that you can see and touch the soul is everything else within the human life our mind our will our emotions the spirit is that part of us which is communicates with god it's the part that was born dead ephesians 2 1 and needs to be regenerated and quickened and made alive and when we by faith believe the gospel then that spirit is made alive and we now are part of the family of God and all these things we've been talking about, and we can have access to God. So we pray in the Spirit. Our spirit bears witness with His Spirit that we are the child of God, Romans 8. So soul and spirit, in our English uh, parlance, we often kind of use them interchangeably, like we'll, we'll talk about our soul going to heaven, which it is, the immaterial part of us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's very clear. We read about that in Luke 16 with Lazarus and in 2 Corinthians 5, the passage I just quoted. So that's the material-immaterial dichotomy, that our body goes to the grave or is burned up, but our soul, the real us, never loses consciousness and goes to heaven. The spirit, which is now made alive, is what makes that possible. So once we're save the soul and spirit are kind of intertwined as to who we are our position in christ our new identity but until we're saved we we have a, we're, our spirit is dead dead in trespasses and sins so the easiest answer would be to think of spirit as that part of us that communicates with god so our soul it can't communicate with god unbelievers and pagans think it can they will emotionally try to talk to god they will intellectually try to talk to God. They'll use all of the, the mind, the will, and the emotions to try to reach God. But until you're saved, and we talked about this in a, one of our Hebrews messages not too long ago, until you're saved, you know, you, you can't, God can't hear you. There's no, there's a, no connecting line. It's like the, the line is, doesn't go all the way to the heaven, right? It's disconnected. But once you get saved, your spirit is made alive, and you now are able to communicate with God. So if you're never made alive, you'll be eternally absent from the Lord mm -hmm. because then you won't have the connection. Absolutely. So when did the spirit begin? Does it begin at conception? Or has there always been the spirit since the beginning? 
in each individual person? Well, that go, goes back into anthropology, biblical anthropology and the origin of man. I mean, the origin of the soul. Uh, I believe that it happens at conception. I don't believe that in eternity past, like some teach that God created 20 billion souls and then he just assigns one every time. So I think at conception, life begins and that life is made up of, uh, you know, body, soul, and spirit to use the common term. But again, to me, soul and spirit are both immaterial. So I prefer to think of it in terms of material, immaterial. There are two aspects to the immaterial part. But, um, and if that spirit is never made alive, that person's going to spend eternity separated from God. Because sin separates us from God. Now, you say, well, what about babies or people with mental illness or those who die at a young age where they're not intellectually capable of understanding sin and the gospel? Well, I believe the Bible teaches that consistent with God's nature, if the one and only condition that we have to meet is impossible for us to meet, then God's grace covers us. Sometimes that you'll hear that referred to as the age of accountability. I don't like that term because it implies there's a specific age. Like we can look up a verse and it says, okay, it, you know, if you die before age 10, you're safe. After that, you're curtains. But that's not what we mean. What we mean is that uh, consistent with God's nature is the fact that he would not hold you accountable to do something that is impossible for you to do. And so if you die and you're in the womb, you're in heaven. If you die and you're a young child who never had the intellectual ability to understand sin and salvation and Christ and death on the cross and all of that, then you're saved. Uh, that's not the same thing, by the way, as those who've never heard, because the Bible addresses that specifically in Romans, that those who've never heard, it's not impossible for them to believe the gospel. The Bible says if they respond to general revelation, God will send them special revelation. So all you got to do is respond to what God has revealed. And if you do, then he'll make sure you hear the gospel, then you believe the gospel, you're saved. If you don't, you're not saved. So people who've never heard, it's not impossible for them to get saved. But someone who cannot intellectually believe the gospel, either because of a, a mental illness, uh, some type of injury, you know. Some, ki some kids might say at the age of four, you, you suffer a traumatic head injury and it scars you for life and you're never able to intellectually put two and two together. I believe that person's covered. So I know Calvinists would disagree vehemently with me and they're probably throwing things at the screen right now, but I mean, I've written about it elsewhere. There's a great book out there by one of my mentors called Safe in the Arms of Jesus that exegetically and theologically makes the point. We see other examples of people, infants dying that we know are in heaven. And this is uh, not, uh, you know, an exp you know, a, uh, this is more of an uh, example than it is an exposition. But David, uh, when his infant son died, remember, he said, uh, you know, they said, why aren't you weeping? And he said, well, you know, I, I uh, can't, uh, he can't come back to me, but I can go to him. So unless we think King David was looking forward to going to hell someday to see his infant son, we can extrapolate from that that his infant son was in heaven. I know that's not the point of that passage, but you can learn a lot from historical narratives based on what happens. So at least we have one example of infants in heaven. So, uh, so those who, because Calvinists would say, uh, babies that die that were elect go to heaven. Babies that die that aren't elect go to hell. And a Calvinist would never tell a grieving mother who lost her child, don't worry, you'll see them again. And I just think that's shameful. I think it's shameful. Uh, but that's the way Calvinists, uh, especially ones that are consistent in their view, uh, teach. You know, it's not about whether you believe the gospel, it's about whether you're elect. Yeah? You know, going back to the very beginning tonight when you talked about, well, if you don't have eternal security, you live with doubt and desperation. I think another thing that you could add to that, I don't know why, but I was just thinking about, I always loved a talk that R.C. Sproul gave about Martin Luther, and I remember it was titled, Love God, Sometimes I Hate Him. Because I think that also, that desperation leads to being angry with God. Yeah. You know, because you know that you can't do what you think in your mind you're supposed to be doing if you don't have eternal 
you know, security. Yeah, so the comment was that if we lack that assurance and security, then it leads to being angry with God because we feel like that there's something we have to do to prove it or keep it. Prove it or keep it. Calvinists say prove it. Uh, Arminians say you got to do it to keep it. Uh, that we know is impossible for us to do. So we get angry at God because he's creating an impossible standard. Right? So, uh, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Anybody else? Yeah, it is very important. I really think it's fundamental uh, to helping us uh, walk with Christ. And, you know, uh, you know we'll, uh, we'll come back to some more doctrines of salvation you know, over time. That's something that's very important to me. But starting next Wednesday, don't forget, we'll do What in the World is Going On. And I'm going to talk about the great satanic reset. And I can't wait to go over some of this material. You're going to be stunned by some of the things that they are saying right in plain sight. And most of us just have our head in the sand and are just uh, not, not seeing it unfold right before our very eyes. So look forward to next Wednesday night. If you're in the Denver area, come uh, see us at Plum Creek Chapel. If not, you can watch it either by recorded video or live stream. All right, thanks. Y'all have a good night.